Our scripture reading today is from Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For he, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened." For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Emily, for reading that passage. I love this story. Uh, so, first of all, we have a new, if you've been here for a while, um, we've added a new piece of art to our collection, which is in the back, on the back wall right there. Um, and it is this story. It's the story of the, it's Caravaggio's depiction of the conversion of, of the Apostle Paul. Um, so be sure and check that, that one out. I love that painting. Um, okay, so it's New Year's. Um, and it's a time where I, I think a lot of people uh, use this to be kind of circumspect, to think about their lives, to think about what they've accomplished in the past year, what it is that they're hoping to accomplish in the coming year. And, and it's a year that we, we often kind of take stock of, of, I don't know a better way to say it than, than our legacy. Like, what is my life amounting to? What are the things that I am 
giving to the world? What are the, what's the, what are the things I'm taking from the world? What are the things that I promised myself that I was going to do last year and, and did? What are the things I promised myself I was going to do last year and did not do? Um, so if, you're, if you are in a season of your life where you're kind of reflecting on where you've come from and where you're going, this passage actually is a really good one to, to kind of unpack all of that. Because in a way, this is a passage that is about legacy. And it gives us a really healthy picture, I think, of what it means to have a healthy legacy uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9 is a pivotal chapter, not just in the book, but it's really a pivotal chapter in the spread of the gospel. Because it's, it's the conversion of Saul and things kind of spin forward from here. And this text really is the story of two men, Saul from Tarsus and this guy named Ananias. It's the first place where the story of Saul's conversion is told, but we also read of this conversion later in Acts 22 and also in Acts 26. And then Paul in his epistles, he tells the story about four more times in the New Testament. So you've got these two guys, Paul and Ananias here. Paul, as you know, would go on to write a third of the New Testament. Paul is unquestionably one of the most influential people in the history of the world. I don't, I don't think you can argue against that. And then there's Ananias. Acts 9, which we just read, and then a brief mention of him in Acts 22 are the only places we hear about him. We really know nothing about his past, except that at some point, it had to have been really close to what we read about today, he became a Christian. We don't know anything about his future. Uh, And so this story is really all that we have of this man. He wasn't famous. But God had his sights on Ananias for a purpose. So if you had to choose, would you rather have a life that was, that, would you rather be famous or would you rather be faithful? Those are not always the same thing. William Wilberforce, he was an English parliamentarian in the early 1800s who fought to bring about the abolition of the slave trade in 1807 and of slavery itself in the British Empire in 1833. When Wilberforce first became a Christian, he considered leaving the public life of politics in order to become a minister, but his friends told him, no, the, the public sphere needs you in this world. We need you to stay in the, in the realm of politics. They believed that God had called him to this. And in a speech to the House of Commons in 1787, a full 20 years before abolishing slavery, Wilberforce said this. He said, let the consequences be what they would, but I determined that I would never rest, never rest, until I had effected slavery's abolition. And then it happened 20 years later. He meant it. He meant that he would never rest. Over the years of pursuing this mission of the abolition of slavery, in England. He was opposed, he was vilified, he was physically attacked. And so for years, being faithful to his call also meant being despised by thousands of his own countrymen. When you face this sort of hostility, you get a chance to really examine what you're doing. 
You get a chance to examine your call before the Lord and what drives you. And Wilberforce did just this. He examined his call. And he wrote this. He said, my walk, I am sensible, is a public one. My business is in the world. And I must mix in assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. I feel that I am serving God best when from proper motives I am most actively engaged in my call to public life. See, Wilberforce's call was not driven by popularity among the people. His call was driven by his conviction that he lived out his calling first and foremost before the Lord and second before everybody else. Sometimes what God calls us to in life, he calls us to things that are neither glamorous nor popular. For the Christian, we have to see that God's call, no matter how seemingly big or small, is above all a call to worship him, it's a call to serve him, it's a call to love him with all that we have and all that we are. Before it's anything else, it's that, how we live our lives before his gaze. And from that, Scripture teaches, from there comes your legacy, how you live out your calling before the Lord. For Wilberforce... His legacy was the abolition of slavery. For Ananias, his legacy was to be the first to take the hand of Saul and join it to the hand of the church. But for them and for us, the legacy springs from a call to serve the Lord with all that we have and all that we are. That's really what it's about. That's really what our lives are about. And Jesus summarized the law in that way. He said that the law of God is, really comes down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's, that's it. Ananias left a legacy of what it is to be faithful to God's call. And I think it's fitting that we don't know much about him. Because most of the time, this is what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness to God often comes without any fame, sometimes comes at great risk, sometimes means being unpopular. But we know a lot about Saul. We know a lot about his hatred for Christians. And we can be sure that believers like Ananias knew that Saul was a dangerous man. He was a dangerous man because he wasn't just some lunatic on the warpath. To really understand Ananias's legacy... We have to look at what he knew about Saul of Tarsus, about his past and his present and his future. So let's start with his past. What we know about Saul of Tarsus is that he was a man on a mission. He was a man on a mission. When the Lord called Ananias to find Saul, Ananias said in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. And how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This was a dark statement because it was a true statement. Saul was on a mission to murder Christians. This was his mission. Now, it's a common mistake that we can make to think that what drove Saul 
was just a hatred of Christians. We might think that was his, that's what drove him, was a hatred of Christians. But it's, it's not what he opposed that drove him. It's what he embraced that drove him. And that was his extreme devotion to his current religion. Saul of Tarsus was an early example of a religious extremist. In Acts 26, he tells Festus that he opposed Christians, here's why, because he believed that they were blasphemers. Why did he think they were blasphemers? Because Christians claimed that Jesus was God. And for Saul, at that time, to claim a man was God was blasphemy. And so it was his zeal for what he believed that drove him. Not just a hatred of Christians, but a zeal for his religion. And this is important because our text says Paul didn't just take it upon himself to persecute Christians. He wanted formal permission to do this. He wanted to be sanctioned to do this from the chief priests. In other words, he wasn't assigned this duty. He lobbied for this duty. And he got his permission. And when we look at who he sought permission from, the temperature in the room drops about 50 degrees. And Ananias knew who he got permission from. He got it from the chief priests in Jerusalem. Well, who were they? Do you remember the chief priest leader Caiaphas? Caiaphas presided over the arrest and beating of Peter in Acts chapter 4 and 5, but that is not all he did, right? Ananias was the priest, or Caiaphas, sorry, and not Ananias, Caiaphas was the priest who presided over the crucifixion of Jesus himself. This is who Saul got permission from. Imagine what that meant for Ananias. The overseers of the public beatings of the disciples and the crucifixion of Jesus himself had given Saul permission to travel to Ananias' town to bring people like Ananias back to Jerusalem to stand trial before them as well for blasphemy. That's what Ananias understood about Saul of Tarsus' past. And he also knew that Saul himself was no soft touch. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen. He looked for ways to kill Christians. And so when the Lord appeared to Ananias to tell him to go find Saul, of course Ananias is uneasy, right? And, and we shouldn't take his hesitance as disobedience when he reacts to the Lord as he does because it's just that up to this point, all Ananias knows is that Saul is in Damascus and he's blind and he's praying and he's waiting for Ananias to arrive and he knows this and he also knows Saul's past. But then there's the matter of Saul's present as well. Based solely on what Ananias knew of Saul, he could have decided right then and there that he would be going nowhere near Straight Street because Saul had traveled there 
to hunt him. Even if Saul was blind and helpless, he was still an enemy. Not just of Ananias, but of Christ himself. But the call that God gives him is a present one. He says, go, for he is my chosen instrument. And so Ananias goes. I wonder what that would have been like, you know? I wonder what it would have been like. I wonder what he took with him. I wonder what he rehearsed on his way to find Saul. I wonder what his escape plan was in case he was only hearing things and things went a little south. You got to wonder about that. But he went. And there's a few things that we get from the way that Ananias responded to the Lord's call. The first is that he was ready. He was ready to do whatever God wanted him to do. Sometimes God's call comes to us in a moment. It's that nudging that says, go do this now. A moment is at hand. So he's ready. The second thing we see in his response is that Ananias knew that a Christian's life is not his own or her own. God told Ananias, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. Present tense. And so no matter what Paul was, no matter what Saul was in the past, in the present, he is God's chosen instrument. The Lord had done this work in Saul. But we have to remember, he also had done this work in Ananias. And his life was not his own anymore. And this is really the beauty of the passage, is not only was Saul God's chosen instrument, but so was Ananias here. Saul had been chosen to minister to the Gentiles, and Ananias had been chosen to minister to Saul. The third thing we see, along with the fact that he was ready and that he understood that a Christian's life is not his own, is that it is always a sacred thing when God calls you to minister to somebody else. It's always a sacred thing. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is always doing exceedingly more than we ask or imagine. It's a sacred thing when God nudges you, when God puts you in somebody else's path in order to minister to them. God can move any heart at any time. The older I get, the more profoundly grateful I am for that simple truth, that God can move any heart at any time. Because you and I both have people in our lives that we look at and we wonder, will anything move the heart? Will any, can anything? Can anything move this heart? And when you look at the story of Saul of Tarsus, we're reminded, oh, God can do what he wants when he wants, as powerfully as he wants. And he can do it through you, but he can also do it with a blinding flash of light that knocks a person off their horse and strikes them blind, Right? God can move any heart at any time. And we are not free to determine who is worthy of his grace. When God does move, we have to understand that the person that he is moving is his. And that if we play any role whatsoever in their coming to faith, even in a parent-child relationship, if we play any role, and that person's coming to faith, we have been given a privilege beyond price 
to just be participants in something God is sovereignly, divinely doing. So for Ananias, he knew that somewhere in Damascus, God's chosen instrument was sitting there blind, fasting, praying, and waiting for his divine appointment for Ananias to show up. And if that's true, then Saul's past really meant nothing now. But then there's also the matter of Saul's future. That he would be a servant, but not just a servant, he would be a suffering servant. Jesus reveals Saul's future to Ananias. And what's kind of strange in the passage is that Christ doesn't reveal the same thing to Saul. He just reveals it to Ananias. To Saul, Jesus says in verse 6, enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. But to Ananias, he says more. He says, go for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings. And then he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's really amazing because what's implied here is that the Apostle Paul learns of his calling from the Lord from Ananias. When Christ appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul and Ananias became brothers. And Ananias greeted him as such. When he greets him, he says, Brother Saul. I also wonder about that. I wonder about what that must have been like. What am I, you know, if you've ever practiced in the mirror saying hello to somebody, I don't know if that's weird and nobody else does that. But you know, like if you ever practiced in the mirror, how you're going to. What am I going to say? Brother Saul. That takes a lot of faith to believe that the Lord can do something like that. And it must have been strange to both sets of ears because Saul, who once hunted Ananias, was now hunted by Ananias. But Ananias hadn't come to take Saul's life, but instead to be instrumental in giving Saul what he needed for the life that Christ had called him to. I love the beauty of this. And so he prayed for Saul to receive his sight, but even more than that, he prayed for Saul to receive the Holy Spirit. So when these two men came together, it was more than an informational meeting. It was a commissioning. It was a commissioning where Saul was set apart for the work that God had ordained for him. And Ananias was called upon by God to commission him to become an apostle to the Gentiles and to commission him to suffer much for the sake of the gospel. So Ananias here, in just these few verses that we get about him, he has this really profound legacy, doesn't it? It's a profound legacy of what it means to be faithful to God's call. I love the story of Ananias because it goes against the grain of culture that loves celebrity that loves to say if you do a plus b you will just be wildly successful and wildly popular i don't remember who this gets attributed to who this quote gets attributed to but somebody once said love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength die and be forgotten that that's the christian legacy 
And man, we live in a time that says, no, no, you should be celebrated, you should leave a mark, you should do great things for the Lord, there should be buildings on campuses named after you, or whatever. The the idea of living a life of fidelity to the Lord, dying and a generation later being forgotten is offensive to us. And the question we have to ask is, what's that about? What is it that we're really after there? Because see, when fame and notoriety are prized, we do what we do for, rec- for the recognition we receive. And we often become like Saul as he waited for Ananias, blind to what really matters. What if God calls you, what if what he calls you is to be faithful in the little things that this world will never really recognize you for? And the question, and maybe the whole point of this sermon is this, is that enough for you? Is that enough? As we go into a new year, as we take stock of who we are, where we've come from, where are we going, is it enough for my legacy to be that I was faithful in little things that this world will never really recognize or remember? One commentator wrote this, a Christian should be known for his Christianity. If you're a Christian, you ought to be known for your service to Christ. End quote. This is what Ananias was known for and not much else. We just know about this. And what we know was that he knew that he was, that it wasn't just that Saul's life belonged to Christ, but that his own life belonged to Christ too. His call was to live for the sake of serving his Lord and his Savior, however he might be used. He was ready. Sometimes God calls us to great Things, things that will leave our names in the history books, like Wilberforce, like the Apostle Paul. But sometimes he calls us to a life of obscurity. And in that life of obscurity is a call to pray for the conversions of guys like Wilberforce and Paul, to bring them a meal when they're hungry, to visit them when they're sick to speak words of truth and life when they're blind and confused. God's call on our lives is to worship and serve him with all that we have and all that we are first. And this is the legacy that Ananias leaves us. Jesus was enough for him, enough to still his fears, enough to satisfy his sense of justice, enough to move him in Saul's direction when Saul needed him. You may look at your life and wonder if it amounts to anything. And I want to plead with you, take great care in how you arrive at the answer to that question. Because we weren't made for celebrity. We were made for intimacy. Intimacy with the Lord. And that you can have whether anybody else recognizes it or not. There is no richer life than the one lived before the face of God with the confidence to proclaim that Jesus is in fact more than enough. And he is. He's more than enough. He's everything. And your call and mine in this life It's not a call to do, it's not a call to achieve, it's not a call to arrive, it's not a call to be recognized, it's a call to himself. The life of the believer, 
The call on the life of every Christian is a call to God himself. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this passage and for the, the way that this text declares to us that no one is beyond your reach. And we confess, Lord, that we struggle to believe that's true because we think we have insight into the reality of who a person is and what that must mean for the reality of who they can ever become. And yet, in a moment, as Paul was in the middle of seeking to destroy the church, you converted him, you changed him, you transformed his life, and only then did you bring other believers into his life to lead him and encourage him and guide him and minister to him. And so, Lord, would you make us people who are ready to respond to your call whenever and whatever it is? Would you make us to be people who understand that our lives are not our own? And would you help us to remember and hold in a very sacred way the truth that it is a sacred thing whenever you call us to minister to anyone in any way? And Lord, would you spin us forward this year as people who really what we desire more than anything else is to be near to you so that we can hear from you and love you and walk with you and grow deeper in our understanding of your love for us? And would that be then the reason why we love and serve others? We pray this in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen.